Yeah, I mean, the first one, it's an absolute massive TAM that we play in, right? And so the opportunity size is huge. You're talking about a trillion dollars being invested in energy projects over the next year. You know, the subset of that of where we, you know, really have the strongest presence, oil and gas, $250 billion to spend next year. And, you know, we're connected with really the clients that are spending that and driving that. And so, you know, it's not, we're talking hundreds of logos, not thousands that are, you know, putting out that type of opportunity. This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Witte, CEO and founder of WorkRise, a marketplace for on-demand services and skilled labor in the energy industry that's raised over $750 million in funding. Michael, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about everything that's happening there at WorkRise, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Mike Witte, uh, founder, uh, CEO of WorkRise. As you mentioned, WorkRise, we're a digital platform that connects energy producers on one side with the workers and services that they need to deliver on energy projects. And so high level, we make it easier, faster, safer for our clients to do business in energy. As for me, I'm a native Texan. Uh, I grew up here in Texas. I went to Texas A&M University, got a degree in petroleum engineering and started my career in oil and gas, which is really what led to uh, the start of WorkRise uh, eight years ago. And so most importantly, though, I uh, live here in Austin, Texas with my beautiful wife as of two weeks ago. Uh, we just welcomed our, our second child into the world. And uh, we are surrounded by two rescued dogs that are constantly looking for new ways to drive me crazy. But I love WorkRise. Uh, I love my family and I love being a part of the Austin ecosystem here in Texas. And how do you find time to manage all that? So, you know, being a husband, being a father, being a dog father and running this big, massive company. How do you balance that? <laughs> it's a great, great question. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, has had to evolve over time. But I actually spend quite a bit of time doing just that, which is being proactive on my calendar and also reflective of where I actually spend time. And so not only, you know, just being a, a father and a family member, but there's, you know, things that enjoy like working out and running. And if you're not proactive about your calendar, you lose those opportunities. And so spend a decent amount of time really like reflecting on that and every week, every month being hyper-prioritized, trying to hone in on the most important things, the highest impact places that, uh, that I can spend my time. So, And would 10-year-old Michael be surprised to know that you have a, a tech company now and you're CEO of a tech company and <laughs> co-founder of a tech company? Yeah. I don't know if 10-year-old Mike would be surprised, maybe be surprised at uh, what that actually looks like. I joke a lot that every founder, every entrepreneur, they have an idea. And you know, behind every idea, there's the excitement of you know, this being a billion dollar company or a billion dollar idea, but you don't quite actually realize what that looks like and what that comes with. And the people, the employees, everything from a day to day that really is about that job is just, it looks different maybe than a uh, 10 year old Mike uh, or even 20 year old Mike would have thought it looks like. But with that, you evolve, you adapt. And uh, it's something that I've really learned to enjoy. And yeah, at each chapter of this thing, finding new ways to enjoy the job. Amazing. I love it. 
Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? It's a, a great question. You know, I, I would say my co-founder, actually, Shen Yong. So I've been fortunate enough to have a co-founder in this thing. Shen has been a great friend, great partner. About a year ago, I moved into the CEO role and Shen now sits as, as chairman of the board. Very different how we think, how we operate, but I believe that's been what has allowed us to continue to grow. And so having a co-founder for anybody that's been a part of it is a relationship journey that's really not dissimilar to a marriage. You're talking about somebody that you spend a ton of time together and not just spending a ton of time together, but you're spending time through, you know, different chapters of life and business from being five folks in a room to 25 folks in a room to 500 folks across multiple rooms and multiple floors, right? And so the evolution of that you know, with a co-founder is, you know, really just like an invaluable experience and, and you learn a lot from each other. And so really admire Shen. You know, I think you'd say, you know, what do you admire about them? Shen, he's always inspiring confidence. He, he's somebody that can come in and always motivate me, always get me excited, always push me to think bigger. You know, I look back on, you know, some of the early days, right? After we raised our Series A, we were starting to find some traction in the market but we're kind of getting to the inflection point of where this thing's going to go. Like every startup, we hit the, we have three months cash left type of situation. And Shin's one of those guys that, you know, when there's panic going, he inspires us, you know, to keep pushing. And so always inspiring confidence. We've also very low ego, humble human being. I think that it's a quality that even lives as a value here at Warcrise, solutions over egos. And I think that me and him both have found ways to put our egos to the side, uh, stay humble through the journey. And it's really helped things. But I uh, admire him as, as a co-founder, as a partner, as a friend. So uh, yeah, he is my number one founder, if you will. Amazing. I love it. And I'm sure he'll be excited to listen to this episode and hear that as well. Yes. Shout out to Shen when you get to listen to this. <laughs> now let's talk about books. Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And uh, this can be, you know, like one of the classic business books, like hard thing about hard things. But what I really like to hear about are like the books that influence how you view the world and, and how you think. I stole this from someone else, but they call them uh, quake books. So a, a quake book is a, a book that kind of rocks your worldview. Do you have any books like that? Oh, man. Well, what's great is the number one book that comes to mind for my favorite book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. So uh, you completely stole that one from me as not being a good example. But it is a great book. And it, it was one that really gave perspective about what being an entrepreneur is. I think a maybe one that isn't talked about as much that was very inspiring for me was um, a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. And, you know, I kind of, back to what I was saying at the beginning, starting out as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you have an idea uh, and you care about your idea and fostering that idea. But one day you look up and what the company and what your idea needs is, is a leader. And to me, this was, uh, I think, the most powerful book on just me being able to adapt as a leader. And the book is really just about awareness. And I've come to find that I think awareness and really high self-awareness is just a critical leadership quality. It allows you to, to constantly be improving, to constantly being aware of your emotions, the emotions around you, and get really effective at decision-making. And so it's out there. It's maybe, you know, not as hard-hitting as you're looking for, but, it, but for me, at least, leadership, self-deception, really powerful book on just the value of awareness and evolving as a leader. You know, what's interesting is you're the fourth person to say that. And all four <laughs> founders who've said that book 
are unicorn founders. So their companies are unicorns. So that's super, super interesting. That variance, leadership and self-deception. I would have thought that was a bit more niche. I thought I had a unique answer there. But uh, that's funny that that's one that's resonated, certainly resonates with me. We've done like 200 of these. So four people yeah. saying that, you know, isn't statistically that crazy. Uh, yeah. You know, for a hard thing about hard things, I would say everybody says that book. So <laughs> I just learned I have to, you know, it's just like kind of assumed, right? I think if you have a startup, that's going to be your go-to favorite business book for the most part. So we've learned to uh, just try to dig a little bit deeper to like the the second tier book after that. That's great. Yeah. So, well, the uh, maybe less unique, but leadership and self-deception, I'll give it the recommendation for founders out there. Amazing. I love it. Well, now let's dive deeper into WorkRise. So can you just take us back to 2014 when you were first starting? You know, what was going on inside your head and with your co-founder? What were those conversations like? And then what led to eventually starting the company? Yeah, feels like a lifetime ago, but that's the beginning. So I, I mentioned up front, my background is a petroleum engineer. I uh, went to Texas A&M University, came out working in oil and gas. And what a petroleum engineer, what, what that means is you are looking for oil and gas and you're, you're helping figure out how to, to get it out of the ground. And really was just fascinated by the oil and gas industry. The technology, the innovation of oil and gas is staggering. You're talking about being able to, to drill a hole into the ground, you know, two miles down, turn, take a left and drill two miles sideways or horizontally. Um, the technology staggering, but what left something to be desired was really the digital innovation and how much that was lacking for such a, a massive industry. So you have this wild technology, but you're still interacting and transacting over the phone and really through carbon copy pieces of paper. And so I thought relatively early on that there was a better opportunity or, or more entrepreneurial approach to the oil and gas industry. And so of all places, I ended up in business school, actually up in New York City. While I was up in business school, I reconnected with Shen and we started talking about really opportunities for digital innovation in oil and gas. It was over a beer in Chelsea, of all places. Chelsea in Manhattan was where we started talking about this oil and gas concept. Shen was coming at it from, been on the finance side of oil and gas, obviously been on the operational side of oil and gas. And that was the original concept of uh, the company that was RigUp, which has now evolved into WorkRise. And so Shin drugged me out to San Francisco. We raised a Series A. Two months later, I graduated. Shin got married and we moved to Austin, where we've, we've been ever since. And we started, yeah, RigUp in 2014, you know, launched our first product in 2015. And what we set out to build was a B2B marketplace in oil and gas. And most of what we still do today, while a lot has evolved and changed, is still holds true to the original business thesis. And I think just, you know, understanding a little bit for folks out there that don't necessarily understand kind of energy or oil and gas, but it's really, really hard to deliver on these energy projects. You've got a wildly fragmented ecosystem of service providers that all have to come together to bring these projects together. And so finding high quality vendors and workers is really difficult, especially in, in real time. And these projects are expensive, they're complex, safety, compliance, environmental standards matter deeply. And you kind of put all that together and it's, it's really difficult for these energy projects to move. And so uh, really set out to deliver a platform that made it easier for clients to do business. Now, like most startups, it took us a minute to kind of find our footing. But by you know 2016, the platform was starting to make a ton of headway. I think one of the most important decisions that we made early on 
was really the concept of breadth versus depth. And so we had the opportunity to kind of keep expanding the spend categories that we offered or the opportunity to go really deep in one category. And 2016, we decided to go really deep in one category. It was our labor offering, which really accelerated the business for the next few years. And on the back of that labor offering or really deep workforce offering, we've been able to add, continue to add breadth with new categories. So the business has evolved. Uh, the company's evolved over the last eight years, but what's to me really involved the most over the journey and over the last eight years is the focus of our clients. And the clients that we support today are no longer just the oil and gas companies that we were supporting eight years ago. They're really energy producers that are looking for the best ways to produce energy today and for tomorrow. And so as our clients have evolved to be more holistic energy producers, so have we. And that's really the transition from rig up to work rise and the focus that we've gotten back to in energy. And I feel like it's a pretty volatile industry, right? With oil and gas and energy production, especially the last eight years, there's been a lot of ups and downs. So how have you seen the industry evolve over these past eight years? Yeah, you know, we've been through multiple cycles of this. You know, if you're able to have kind of the right outlook over the right duration, you know that really energy demand is only going up and to the right. In fact, globally, there is an energy shortage and there's a constant struggle to be able to produce more energy to meet that demand. And so as our clients have evolved to, again, not just be oil and gas companies, but to invest dollars into renewable projects, you don't have to have as much of just a macro view on where oil and gas is going to go. You really just need to have a view on where energy is going to go. And as part of kind of the energy transition, as part of just electrification of the globe and of the U.S., we only see energy going up and to the right. Now, it's been our job as a business to better position ourselves with our clients to account for that. And so there's been volatility over the last eight years as every startup has gone through. But as we've positioned the business really in energy, it takes away some of that volatility over the next decade and what that's going to look like. Makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing we like to ask founders who are, you know, at the scale that you're at and the size that you're at is, you know, in those early days, can you tell us about any near-death experiences? I think in the intro there, you'd mentioned there is a moment where it was, what, three months of cash left. Was that the closest you got to a near-death experience or what's like your best, most yeah. brutal, painful story? Not to um, take you back to a dark place here. Man, uh, there's a few dark places, you know, and, and it feels like every time you get out of one, there's something like, a Silicon Valley bank issue that pops up, uh, like we dealt with a lot of founders out there were probably dealing with last week. But look, it's not probably not the most original answer, but it was a bit different for us, which was really COVID was the darkest time for us. Now, more importantly, uh, what people, a lot of people forget or don't realize is what happened to us before COVID was there was a actually a Saudi price war from an oil and gas perspective that came before COVID. And so oil and gas prices really before COVID just absolutely plummeted. You then had COVID come in and just completely wipe out oil and gas demand for a period of time. And so for a platform that's really based on ongoing activity, you had an industry that all but shut down. And so at the time, we did like a lot of companies did and pushed and scrambled quickly, moved quickly to diversify, to take our offering into other new markets, we were obviously, we were able to be successful, you know, to a certain extent in doing that. But, you know, we had really over the course of six weeks, 
you know, the vast majority of, of our revenue just shut down. It really evaporated. But, you know, that was everybody. A lot of folks went through it. A lot of folks were there. I, I don't necessarily want to say our, ours was any harder or easier, but the oil and gas dynamic specifically at the time in which we were still highly leveraged to oil and gas was a pretty radical shift that we had to deal with. And did you have any, how long did you say that was that you had to prepare? It was like six weeks. It went down to nothing, basically? Not quite down to nothing, but the industry ramped down pretty aggressively over about six to nine weeks. And so we had really a few months to shift resources, uh, start shifting resources pretty dramatically and starting to find opportunities in new verticals, new in markets. And so it was a pretty quick shift for what we did during that time. And what was going on inside your brain as you navigated that situation? Because like you said, you know, a lot of founders right now find themselves navigating very difficult situations as well. So what was going through your head and how did you manage yourself through that process? It's a great question. I think that there's two things that I've learned during, during any wartime that also kind of help you navigate during peacetime. And I actually find a bit more of radical transparency with employees to be one of the most important things. It's not necessarily something that we've always done well, but it's something that we've learned. I've learned the, the impact of that. And at the end of the day, you're thinking a lot about your employees and you're thinking a lot about, you know, survival and making this work. And if you are more transparent with just the problems you're facing, what's going on with the business, then come to find it's like your employees will step up to start to solve these problems. And I think that there's, you know, often it can be a founder mindset about, oh, I, need, I need to put this on my shoulders. I, I need to figure this out and believe the opposite to be true. Be transparent with your team, be transparent with your employees. And even as painful or as radical as that might be, and you'll see folks dive in and start solving the problems that you need solved. Amazing. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, something else I want to ask about. So in, in response to COVID, I know you guys did a pivot. And then in April of last year, I believe you pivoted back to make energy that core focus. Uh, I know there were some layoffs there. So can you talk us through that, I guess, re-pivot and, and yeah. the re-pivot back and what happened and what that was like and some of those lessons you learned as you did that? Yeah. So with COVID, we really had to shift into all of these new in-markets. And we were able to, uh, you know, do that successfully. Really, and what we did was take our kind of core workforce offering and started to apply that to, to new industries. We were able to do that successfully in kind of that zero to one phase of being able to show growth, being able to get a little bit of scale. But as we came kind of out of that COVID environment and really looked for more rapid growth or exponential growth in these markets, the fragmentation of the strategies was just too much. We had you know, lost in some areas of our right to win and the capabilities that really had made us great. And so while, you know, the moves that we made during COVID to diversify our revenue to get into new markets, it was great for a time, but uh, the cracks quickly started forming. And so uh, I mentioned uh, I stepped in as a CEO about a year ago in, in, in Q1, early Q1 of 2022. And it was very clear that we needed to get back to just a, a focused strategy that we could win with. You talk about what helps you during those times or making those decisions. One thing 
that has been incredibly powerful for us and for me as a founder is our mission. And really getting back for companies that have a mission statement that really guides the company from, you know, it informs the highest level of strategy. And for us, our mission points us to our clients and says focus on our clients. And so when you have a lot of noise, when you have hard decisions to make, going back to something foundational like your mission and saying, we've got to make decisions in service of our clients. We've got to make decisions to help our clients win, you know, brings clarity, if you will, to some of those harder times. And what's it like for you as you go through these big decisions? Because it, it seems like over the years that the company's really been defined by a series of yeah. big decisions. So the decision to pivot during the pandemic, which it, it sounds like you had to do regardless, and then the decision to you know pivot back to this core focus. How do you like make those decisions? And how do you make them so quickly? Because it seems like you make these decisions rather quickly. And I, I think that's a really valuable insight for founders to hear and to learn from because it can be very easy, I think, to delay making decisions and to put off making decisions, especially if they're very big decisions like some of those decisions you've had to make. It's a great question. So obviously one thing that helps you get to the right decisions faster. And to me, it's not just about making decisions. Anybody can go make decisions. It's trying to get to the right decisions faster. Having a great team that's supportive of you and is, is in it with you and making those decisions is really helpful. And so, you know, I've got an executive team right now that, you know, is, is in lockstep on these decisions. We don't have to agree with everything that's being done, but we can always disagree and commit to what's best for the company. And that's really powerful and really helpful as a CEO to have that team and that support network around you. You know, for founders, for CEOs, for managers out there, I can think of very few. I can think of very, very few decisions where I've known a decision needed to be made, as hard as it might be, where I've had the data, the insight, even just the gut feeling to say, this is a decision that needs to be made. And I can think of very few in which I look back and say, thank goodness I waited. Thank goodness I waited to make this. And when you know, oftentimes you know. And whether that's through data or whether that's through the gut about what needs to be done, the quicker you act on that, the quicker you're transparent about that, on the logic behind things, the easier it gets. I always say, like, it's not hard when it's right. And when you're making the right decisions, it's easy. And so it's part of the job. But as long as you're doing it for the right reasons with the right logic, then yeah, everybody benefits. And let's talk about that transition that you had to make from COO to CEO. Um, and you said it's about a year in now. What's been the biggest surprise as you took on this new role? Oh, I think I benefit benefit because in this case, my co-founder and Shen, who was former CEO, he's still the chairman of the board. We still have a close relationship. And so we're still able to work through things together. To me, maybe I go back to the question you'd asked in the beginning about time management and, and where you spend your time. And, you know, as COO, you know, is being operationally focused, being able to get in the weeds of what was going on in the business is something I very much enjoyed and resonated with. And a reflection of my time would show that on where I, where I was spending that time and where I was investing. And so to me, the biggest transition has been as we've, you know, backfill a CRO into a lot of those responsibilities is taking that step back to think about where to have higher impact. You know, one thing that I spent a lot of time in 2022 was really stabilizing our culture. You talk about two major changes in, you know, the span of 18 months that came to the business our culture was incredibly unstable going into to 2022. 
and had to spend a lot of time like rebuilding that trust. I'd spend a lot of time rebuilding that trust with employees, rebuilding that trust in the business, rebuilding that trust in our strategy, which was, you know, a bit of a new muscle for me, but something that has paid off and, and benefited greatly, you know, on what those investments look like and just what that's done to kind of the morale of the company over the last 12 months. And you're now about a decade in or 10 years into this company. Do you ever struggle with, you know, feeling motivated or do you just wake up every day ready to run through walls just like you were back in 2014 in the early days? You know, honestly, I wake up ready to run through walls, you know, pretty much every day. You know, I love our mission. It is something that gets me up in the morning, forging connections, make it easier, faster and safer to power the world. And again, what that means is that if we can deliver on a product, on a platform that speeds up our clients, then what you're really speeding up is the world moving to a more sustainable balance of energy. And if that's something that I can be a part of and influence, if, you know, can create something that leaves the world a better place for my two kids, then I can get up and run through a wall for that every day. And so to me, you know, our, our mission is not just words on the page. It's, it's what gets me up. It's what excites me. And, you know, there's times in which maybe you lose some of that spark, but it's so important and would encourage anybody out there, like, take a step back and always continue to try to find what that is. Uh, for me, at least, like I said, it's, it's, it's our mission that I can kind of always go back to. And if I had to pick out one keyword from this interview, it would for sure be mission. Uh, it seems like a very mission-focused company and you're a very mission-focused founder. How do you make the mission real? Because I think oftentimes what happens with a mission and oftentimes with core values is like they're just like buried on some page of the website or maybe they're you know hanging on the office where you know no one really thinks about them and it's just kind of like fluffy bullshit but it seems like it really guides the company and everything that you do so how'd you pull that off how'd you get the company to be so mission focused yeah i think it's the combination of mission and values now one thing that we did was we did change our mission as part of the change in the focus back on energy is we did change that mission. What was important to me about the process that we went through in doing that was our entire broader leadership team participated in what that looked like. Every single word, you know, we spent three days actually working through that and coming up with that mission that was going to guide us going forward. To me, the reason, you know, what's so important is that is, is everybody has their hands, their DNA in that, and every leader committed to that mission and being a part of it which I think is really powerful. We have used that mission, we have used those words to make other, you know, relatively big decisions over the last 12, 18 months on from resource allocation to, you know, what we're supporting to, you know, what we're not supporting. There's been divestitures or assets that we've divested because we can point to that and say, look, this is not going to be able to connect to our mission. And while there's some financial trade-offs that we need to make, this is the rigor that we put into those words and this is what's driving our path forward. And so we're going to abide by that. And I think values are the same way, you know, values equally as important in just the behaviors that we're able to operate off of and bring in mission to life. And we talk about values all the time. We talk about values as a leadership team every month and not just the words, though, the behaviors, the actions, what we want to incentivize employees, what we want to not incentivize uh, when it comes to value. And so there's a number of ways to operationalize those. But at the end of the day, if you're really making decisions, putting your money where your mouth is on the words that are on the page, then uh, it starts to feel real for everybody. And was the public output of that three-day session, the blog post, easier, faster, safer? 
Yeah, that's a good... Now, that was probably over 12 months from when that was put together. But that would have been a bit more of the public output of where that came together. Now, it was obviously started with the leadership team. It was getting you know, employees to be able to wrap their heads around it, connect to it. You know, whenever you go through an adjustment like that, there's also employees that can't make the leap, right? And don't blame them for a second about the shift of what a new mission entails. And so, yeah, it's working through it as a leadership team, working through it as employees, working through it with, with investors. And then, yeah, the public output, if you will, was that the blog post that you're referencing. Yeah, and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes because it's just, a, you know, it's honestly a masterpiece as I would describe it. I was reading that as I was preparing for this interview and, you know, I don't come from this industry and I was, you know, kind of expecting it to be just full of, you know, things that I don't understand, basically. Um, and I read through it and it was just written in such a clear, very compelling way. It was very easy to understand. And I read that and I got excited and I got fired up about what you guys are doing. So you did an excellent job with that or you and your team did an excellent job with that. And I think that's a really good example for founders because a lot of founders have to write posts like this. And I'm sure you've read some as well, but a lot of the ones I read, you just kind of walk away like scratching your head of like, so what's happening? What transition are they doing? You know, what's what's the pivot here? Or what's the change? So you guys really nailed it with that one. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, a lot of thought. And again, goes back to the kind of the, some of the transition from COO to CEO and the value in, in uh, putting the right words together for folks. It goes a long way. And so I appreciate the, the recognition on that one. Yeah, no problem. Now, last couple of questions. Let's talk a little bit about money. So as I mentioned in the intro there, 750 million. As I told you in the pre-interview, that is the highest funding total so far. The previous total was 550. So breaking records on the Category Visionaries podcast. So what do you think has investors so excited about this opportunity that they're really you know, willing to invest such a large amount? You know, like we're close to a billion dollars here, which is uh, pretty wild for a private company. Yeah, I mean, the first one is just, it's an absolute massive TAM that we play in, right? And so the opportunity size is huge. You're talking about a trillion dollars being invested in energy projects over the next year. You know, the subset of that, of where we, you know, really had the strongest presence, oil and gas, $250 billion to spend next year. And, you know, we're connected with really the clients that are spending that and driving that. And so, you know, it's not, we're talking hundreds of logos, not thousands that are, you know, putting out that type of opportunity. And so I think the size and magnitude of the space is obviously draws a lot of attention but like in addition to that, it's really, you know, for the most part, an underserved market. Now we have competitors kind of in different slices of, of what we offer and what we do, but we're certainly kind of coming at it, been coming at it with a new lens. For the most part, and for the most part that, you know, that's possible, we're competing against the status quo because there has not been as much of an investment in this space. And in fact, I'd, I'd go the other way. People have been running away uh, from oil and gas for a long time. And there's not a projection out there that exists that doesn't show oil and gas being a meaningful part of our energy ecosystem in the year 2050. It's not going anywhere. And because of that, it has to be part of the solution. It has to be part of how we get to a sustainable solution. Yet there's been so many dollars that have left industry. And so you've got a really big TAM. You've got an industry that hasn't necessarily been, you know, invested in. And so there's a ton of opportunity. And I think, you know, within that, I mentioned at the beginning is that, you know, well, our clients are really at the beginning of this or at the beginning of this energy transition. We've, we've watched this happen over the last few years. 
And these clients, if you go read about our clients, they're not just oil and gas producers anymore. They're starting transition. They're starting to evolve. And the concept, the energy transition is going to be something that's with us for the next 30 years. And so I think those things are, are really what excite investors. And yeah, it has led to a lot of the funding. That makes a lot of sense. And do you think a lot of that has to do with just like the maybe perception issues of oil and gas? Like, I think to some people in the tech world, that's you know probably the equivalent of starting a, a tobacco technology yes. company, which, you know, of course, I don't agree with, but I can see that like perception. Do you think that's one of the reasons that you don't see a lot of founders really trying to focus on this space and, and solve problems in this space? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's been a polarizing topic and a political topic that, again, the pragmatic view would say that, you know, the, our sustainable future in, involves a bit of both. And I've seen all sides of this. But as somebody that, you know, kind of grew up in Texas, I grew up in this world, grew up in this environment. This industry is not, it's not bad people. These are friends. These are family. These are folks that are providing a service that the world needs right now is going to need in the future. Now, what's exciting about this, and if you can kind of get away from, it's not oil and gas versus, it's not oil and gas versus renewables. It's how do they both come together in a way that gets us to, you know, sustainability. Then, you know, you realize that the, the logos that are driving oil and gas are also driving the other side of this. And so, yeah, I think it's something that it is a bit of a polarizing topic, especially, you know, among investors, among other founders and entrepreneurs. But to me, you know, I strongly believe that oil and gas is part of the present, it's part of the future. And the great people out there that work in this industry will also be the people that are helping kind of radically inform what this energy transition looks like over the next 30 years. Now, last question here, because I know we're up on time. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. What does WorkRise look like and what's your impact on the industry as a whole? Great question. I, you know, I tell folks this all the time. I'll go back to the theme, the theme of the podcast, our mission. Our mission is to serve our clients. So when you have that and you know who you're serving in this, you don't have to know exactly what the next three to five years look like. Our clients know, our clients will take us where they need to go. And it's our job to latch onto them and continue to deliver technology that makes it easier and faster and safer for them to operate. And so if you just focus on our clients, you know, you don't have to have all of it figured out. Now, I do think there are going to be a few things that evolve over the next three to five years. One is kind of what I've been talking about. You're going to see our clients start to put more dollars into renewables. That's already happening. They've already made these commitments, but you're going to start to see that play out. Number two, as, as that happens, I believe that there's really an opportunity to kind of go to the next layer of supply chain innovation, getting more into supply chain automation. And I think we're really just cracking the surface on what can be done to radically improve the way that these companies operate. And then, you know, third is something I'm sure that's been talked about on here from a number of different angles, but everything going on in, you know, AI right now is not just a blip on the radar or something that's, you know, going to pass in the night. I believe it's going to be something that's, that's very much a part of, you know, how we operate, what we're able to offer clients and want to make sure that we're staying ahead as a conduit by which we can improve how our clients operate with innovation like that. So, you know, it'll be a different environment over the next three to five years. I know that, but stay focused on the mission, stay focused on our clients and they'll guide us where we need to be. Mission, mission, mission. That's my takeaway from this podcast. That's great. That's objective accomplished. <laughs> I love it. All right, Mike. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap here. I'd, I'd love to keep you on and ask you questions for another couple of hours, but I'm sure you have a lot of things to do and your team will probably kill me if I keep you on for much longer. So let's wrap here. 
Uh, before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah, the uh, workguys.com, we post all of our blogs and articles. I also do that on LinkedIn as well. If anybody wants to follow me, those are good conduits as we continue to share our journey and uh, the journey of WorkRise. Amazing. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story and, and talk about the lessons you've learned and really just what you're building. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot. I know our audience is going to learn a lot and really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me, Brett. I appreciate it. All right. Keep in touch.